good way, dear congregation, to remember these cities that the apostle visited on his first missionary journey is A-I-L-D. Doesn't really pronounce very well in English, but Ailda or something like that. Ailda, A-I-L-D, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. A good way to try to keep it in our minds. These four cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. And on the map, you can also see that this was in the region of Galatia. Galatia. And this is uh, then later when Paul hears of trouble in these churches that he writes the letter to the Galatians. It's written to those four churches of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Ailda. Or Ailda. At any rate. As we begin to consider this chapter then in our study of the book of Acts, we we see uh, something very interesting that takes place in the city of Lystra. And that's that big word I put under the introduction there on the outline, contextualization. Contextualization. And this is an interesting concept for us, especially as we're thinking now as a church about this missional life. Remember, we, we began thinking about that in Acts 13, where we saw the, that the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and, Sil or Paul and Barnabas for the work that he had called them to perform. Remember, at that time, we, we noted that God is a missionary God. That God, from the never begun uh, time of, of uh, eternity past, has fixed his love upon a, 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 a people to save them. And now he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to save them. And this is the mission that God is on. This is the mission that he is on, and this is the mission that he sets apart Paul and Barnabas to to execute, you might say, on that plan. To carry on that work of calling out of darkness a people for himself. But now this issue of contextualization, my friends, means that Paul and Barnabas meet different people with different backgrounds and with a different set of ideas in their head. Right? The word that we would use today is they have a different worldview. They have a different cultural set of ideas in their mind, don't they? And Paul now... He's going to preach the gospel, same message, but since it's coming in a different context, and, and there you see that word contextualization, right? It's since it's coming to a different people in a different context, he's going to change the way and the method of that, of that gospel message such that it is more effective to those particular people, such that it will meet with something that they, in their own minds, that he can connect with. And of course, this is something very important for us to think, not just for Paul and Barnabas, but for us as we live our life in this world, of how we can most effectively bring the gospel message to all different kinds of people. So here we are then. Before we get to Lystra, let's look at the second stop on Paul's journey. Uh, you'll remember that at Antioch, they have shaken the dust off their feet. You can see that at the very end of chapter 13. They shake the dust off their feet uh, because... Uh, uh, so many of the Jews of the area, uh, of the city of Antioch, refused to listen to Paul's message. And Paul moves on in chapter 14, then to stop number two, the second stop on his journey, Iconium. By the way, again, just in terms of distance, another 60-mile walk. That's just always so remarkable to me. They went to Iconium, 60 miles away. So, children, that would be like you uh, putting on your shoes and setting out for Grand Rapids. That's how far he had to walk. At any rate, second stop is Iconium. Now, I just want to point out a few things here 
in Iconium. And actually, just one thing in Iconium, and that is the separation. I think that's something we see. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 14, you'll see this separation, right? And you can see that it begins already in verse 1, that a large number of people believed both of Jews and of Greeks. So here you have on the one side these people who accept, they embrace the preaching of the Apostle Paul. They believe it. But on the second verse, we already see, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And therefore the apostles continue to speak. God does miracles. But then look in verse 4. In verse 4 again. Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. And some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now right there, my friends, we already have such an important point in the missional life of God's children is that there is always that division, isn't there? That in the preaching of the gospel, there are those who believe and there are those who do not believe. And we can look at that division, my friends, from two sides. When we look at it from the divine side, when we look at it from God's side, then we have to go back to Acts 13. Acts 13 and... Hang on while I find that verse a minute. Remember that it said that as many... Oh, I have it right here. Verse 48. Verse 48. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So when we look at it from the divine side, from God's side, we know that God has an election according to his grace and according to his good pleasure. That he chose people to be saved. And that in his sovereignty, he sends Christ to save them. And so on the divine side, on God's side of things, we see his grace and his election operating in that crowd. And so there's that division. When we look at it from the human side, then we say some believed the gospel and some did not. There's always that two sides operating whenever the gospel goes forth. To some, the gospel is a saver of life unto life. And again, by God's grace and by his calling, their hearts are changed and they come to accept that gospel, to embrace it, and their hearts are saved. But to some, the preaching of the gospel is a savor or an odor of death unto death. And the gospel, the same gospel that comes, hardens them in their unbelief and they are lost. Again, looking at it from the divine side, the same gospel, a savor of life, a savor of death. If you want an illustration for that, my, my friends, children, you can think of what happens when the sun, the same sun, shines on wax or when it shines on concrete or paint. Same sunshine, but what a different effect, right? The wax becomes soft and it begins to melt or chocolate, right? You've seen chocolate in the sun, right? There it starts to melt. But what happens when that same sun shines on wet concrete or wet paint? It begins to harden, doesn't it? The same sun, but it has such a different effect. Now that's looking at it from, the gospel, from, from God's side, right? That the gospel hardens some and it saves others. But looking at it from the human side, we can say that some people choose to believe that gospel. They put faith in Christ and they are saved. And others choose to reject that gospel. They turn away from it. They dismiss it. 
and they are lost. So in Iconium, we see that division come. And my friends, if I could just quickly make a point of application on that, we need to be prepared to do that also in our own life. That in our own missional kind of life, in our own working, when we bring the gospel, we need to be prepared that God may use us in his own sovereignty to save that person. And we pray that that will be what the result may be. But we also know that the result may be that that person may reject the gospel and may even be hardened under it. And that too, we need to be willing to accept. Now, since we don't know God's election, since we don't know who God has chosen and who he has not, we don't stop. We continue to pray for that person's salvation. We continue to work. We continue to, to speak to that person. Right? We don't rashly conclude, oh, he must be reprobate, and therefore I'm just going to walk away from him. That would be most foolish. right? You're not God. That's why it's so important to distinguish between the divine side and the human side. We are human. The secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. And we treat every person then as a person who needs to hear the gospel and who needs to be saved and who can be saved. Again, that really is, a, is such an important point when we think of our missional life as Christians. We don't see election and reprobation. We see lost sinners, and therefore we preach the gospel to them. And we call them to repentance, and we call them to faith, and we plead with God, Lord, save this person. Call him. And we never give up. And if you begin to confuse those two things, the divine side and the human side, then you begin to make foolish things. Like I heard a man pray once. He said, Lord, harden the reprobate in their unbelief and save your elect. Now, that's not an appropriate prayer, my friends. Not for a human person. For a human person, we say, Lord, save these people. Break their hard hearts. Call them out of their unbelief. And may they be converted. So, the lesson from Iconium. We see that separation that comes between God's elect and God's non-elect. And for us, between unbelievers and believers. And we work until we have no breath left to bring them to faith in Christ. So, that's the second stop, Iconium. I move now to the third stop. Now, in the third stop, we have this situation where Paul almost, or possibly does, actually lose his life. And so I've given you these four points, or these four uh, things that happened to Paul in Lystra. And you can see that after they left Iconium, just a, a brief walk, not so brief really, by our standards, but brief for Paul, and they come to Lystra. Now, the first thing that we have here is this trigger. Because there's this man who is lame, and Paul begins to notice that every time Paul, uh, he wakes up in the morning and he goes about his evangelistic work, he begins to preach, he begins to teach, there's that man again, and he's lame, he cannot walk. Somebody has to bring him to the services. And there he is again, and on the third day, and on the fourth day, there he is again. And Paul begins to notice this man. He continually and repeatedly is present at the preaching of the gospel. And he's not just present... Everybody should listen up real closely now. Because he's not just present, but he's hanging on Paul's every word. He's listening closely. He's listening intently. Maybe he's sitting in the front row. And so Paul begins to notice this, right? And you can see that Paul fixes his gaze on him. And that's a very uh, important word. In other words, he didn't just glance at him, but Paul began to really notice this man. And especially... And this, it appears that God would have revealed this to Paul, because I, I don't know how else Paul would have known. But he says at the end of verse 9, and Paul saw that he had faith to be made well. 
In other words, this man wasn't just listening, but he was believing. He was embracing the message. He was amongst those people where the gospel had become a savor of life unto life. And he believed not only in the gospel for the forgiveness of his sins, but even that physically he might be healed from his lameness. And so then Paul steps forward boldly, right? In verse 10, stand upright on your feet. And you can imagine the astonishment, right, to the crowd uh, when these people begin to realize, or when, not when they begin to realize, but when they see this man, you know, vault to his feet. He leaps up, right? It's not that he, he sort of creakily, you know, aches and pains and got up, right? He jumps up and there he is and he walks. And these people must have fallen back in astonishment when they see what happened. And of course, they're delighted and they immediately make the wrong conclusion, right? That the gods have come down to them. Now, let me say something about the people in Lystra. And again, this goes back to my introduction on contextualization. Because these people in Lystra, my friends, must have been Gentiles. They must have been pagans. Now, there's a couple of reasons why we would think that. And the most obvious is because they begin to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, right? Clearly, they, they held to the Greek pantheon or the Greek collection of gods, right? But also, you can see that uh, uh, later in the... Uh, Later in, in verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. That implies that there were not Jews in the city of Lystra already. The Jews came to the city from Antioch and Iconium. And so that, that is interesting to us because of this whole issue of contextualization. So let's continue then. So the reaction that then happens is they begin to conclude that Paul and Barnabas are gods, and they call Barnabas Zeus, the, the chief god, and Paul they call Hermes because he was the main speaker. And then Paul and Barnabas, of course, are at great pains to, to, uh, to disillusion them from this idea that they're gods. And then you have the letdown. The, uh, the people who at first were filled with delight that these gods had come to visit them when they begin when the reality begins to dawn on them, there's this letdown, right? They're very disappointed. The gods haven't really come to visit us. Paul and Barnabas are just two men. And probably since the Jews have now come from Antioch and Iconium, these Jews are probably telling the uh, citizens of Lystra that actually these two men are, are charlatans, right? They're frauds, right? And the mood completely shifts, right? And then you have the beatdown, right? The, they, they stone Paul, drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But the, the typical practice at the time was to stone somebody until you, you assumed he was dead, and then you dragged him out of the city for the dogs and the vultures to finish him off. So it's very likely that the, Luke doesn't actually say that he died, but it's very likely at this point that Paul did really die, and that he was dragged out of the city, and that God, by his miraculous power, brought him back to life, uh, which is implied again by verse 20, where it just says, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Right? It doesn't say he... He struggled, and you know they, they carried him into the city, but he got up on his own strength and walked into the city. So this is what happened in Lystra. The trigger, the lame man being healed, the reaction, the letdown, and the beatdown. But now, the sermon. Because this is, this is so very interesting to us, my friends, in terms of our own missional activity. Is that the sermon that Paul gives is not really a sermon, right? Because they're just running out into the crowd, and, and trying to restrain them from sacrificing. But what's interesting to us is the very different 
approach that Paul takes with these Lystran people from what he did with the Antioch people in Acts 13. You'll remember that in Acts 13, Paul had given a recital of all what God had done for the people of Israel. How that he had raised up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had led them through the wilderness. He delivered them from Egypt. He talked about David and Solomon. He talked about the prophets. He recited all these events from biblical history. All this is what God has done for you people of Israel. Remember, I gave that sermon the title, The Mighty Acts of God Performed on Behalf of His People. But now it's different, isn't it? So if you turn to verse 15, here you have Paul and Barnabas rushing into the midst of this crowd. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, my friends, note in the first place that the message has not changed. Now, that's critical. The message is still you need to turn. That means to repent, turn away from sin, and to turn to God in Jesus Christ. The message is still the same. You might say the conclusion, the end point, is still the same. But now look what, what, what Paul says, those very next words. Again, I'm in chapter 14 and verse 15. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, now Paul finds common ground with the Lystran people, not in our shared belief in what God has done for his people of Israel, but in the fact that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And nobody can miss that, right? Even the people who live in Lystra know that there is the heaven, there is the earth, and all the things that are in them. And it's on that point now that Paul, you might say, finds his entry point. He finds that common ground that he can now speak to these people. Because these people don't understand Moses, Aaron, David, right? They don't know who those people are. And so Paul doesn't th speak about that. He contextualizes the message so that it will be more effective to preach to these people who don't know the scriptures. And so he appeals to them and the common ground that they have in God as creator. Because my friends, even a child can look outside, right, and realize that something had to account for this creation that I see all around me. This is not something complicated, right? This is the, this is what is, uh, well, I put that on the outline there. This is what is called in theological and philosophical circles, a cosmological argument. The cosmos is the, the world, right? The universe. And so it's a argument from the world or from the universe to the existence of a creator. If there's a creation, there must be a creator. And this is a very simple way then that Paul finds common ground with these people of Lystra. And now he speaks to them about their need to turn from their idols, to turn from Zeus and from Hermes, from all these other gods that they profess to believe in. He says that's just silly nonsense. And by the way, it was silly nonsense. The, uh, the, the Greek pantheon was the butt of every joke. Not every joke, but in, in Greco-Roman culture, there's, it's very uh, common in literature to see people mocking the gods of the, of the Greek pantheon because the one had adultery with this person, and then the one person got with that person, and, and, and I mean, absurd, ridiculous stories 
that uh, didn't inspire faith in people, but inspired laughter. And so Paul actually, when he says this, is speaking to people who even themselves probably didn't have a whole lot of respect um, for, for their own gods. And so Paul says, turn from this silliness. Turn from this Greek mythology, which we even study today yet. But does anybody really respect Greek mythology? Like, like think that it, it could actually pertain to reality? I mean, it's silly, right? And Paul's actually doing much of what the same thing we would do today. That's, that Greek mythology, do you really believe that nonsense? Give that nonsense up. Turn away from it. It's silly. That's stuff for children. Look at this creation. Who brought this whole thing into existence? Who created the whole fabric of this universe? Why don't you turn to serve that God? Right now, he's not talking about serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about serving the creator of heaven and earth and the one who brought all these things into existence. Now, he continues on that. Uh, in, in verse 16, he says, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Now that means, uh, dear friends, that God did not give a written revelation to all the nations of the earth. What nation did get God's written revelation? That was Israel, right? His people Israel. God gave to them a written revelation. We call that special revelation. I put that little chart on the right side there, on the back side of the outline, that God gave to his people Israel a written revelation. The Bible. It's a special revelation. But Paul says in verse 16, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. In other words, he did not give them a special revelation. But for all that, Paul says in verse 17, and yet did he not leave himself without witness, and that he did get, that he did good, and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is God's unwritten revelation. This is the witness that God gave to all people. It's not written in words, but it's something that you can see, right? And again, it's at the basis of what we call this cosmological understanding, right? That there's this cosmos, there's this world out there. Something has to account for it. Right? These things do not just come into existence on their own. And so there must be an agent, there must be a creator out there who is worthy of worship. He's the living and true God. So there you have Paul then in verse, in verse 16, denying that God gave them what's on the right side of that chart, the special revelation, but asserting and affirming that God gave on the left side of that chart general revelation to all people's and now the goal, well, the goal of both sides, the, the goal of both God's general revelation and his special revelation is to bring people to repentance. But now, my friends, you see this, this, uh, this way that Paul contextualizes the message of the gospel. He doesn't change it. Doesn't change it. It ends in the same place. But he uses a different method to appeal to these people and to reach them with the cause of the gospel. Well, my friends, let me, let me uh, leave the, uh, the text there. And let's turn to some points of application on this then. Now, the first thing, my friends, this may seem like kind of an odd application to make, but I just can't pass it by. The mob. There are these movements that happen in society, right, where people get caught up in the hysteria 
of the moment. And it leads them to do things that later they regret. And I just can't pass by this mob action that takes place in Lystra without giving you a careful warning, both to you and to myself, that whenever there's this kind of movement in society, but my friends, even in the church, it happens that movements get started, one person starts saying something, three more, ten more start adding on, and pretty soon people get caught up in it. I know this, I experienced it myself. I suspect if you talk to some of the elderly members amongst us, they would tell you similar things, and how bitterly I regret my own actions, my friends, when this happened to me, and I resolved to God that that would never happen again. Mobs do not lead people to do rational things. And so we need to be cautious about that. You need to step out of the group, step out of the hysteria, make your own independent analysis of the situation and be rational, be in prayer and be in the word of God. Don't get swept along by the hysteria that, that is so common in our day. It's so common in the world, but my friends, it does happen in the churches too, where people get caught up in a movement and they get swept along by this tidal wave. My friends, step out and make be and, and stand on your own two feet. God is, expects you to take his word and to make your own judgment on these things that happen in society and in the church. Watch the mob movements. Watch the hysteria that comes when we get caught up in such a movement. I put under that first application there, resolved. Let's all resolve as a people to be cautious, extra cautious when these movements form in the church and in society. It's so easy to get caught up in that. But more to our point this morning is my second application. We see here, my friends, the insufficiency of human reason and the insufficiency of general revelation. Now, God has given us these minds that are able to think and to reason. And it's one of the very greatest gifts that he gives to his creatures. And so in no way do we ever want to denigrate our human reason. It is such a precious gift that God has given us. And we, we, we don't look forward to the day when we lose our reason. And we pray that we never do. But my friends... Human reason is insufficient to bring us to Christ. And we see that here in, in Lystra, don't we? That these people who had lived with every possible advantage in the Greek world at the time, with all sorts of education, with all sorts of philosophy available to them, the Greeks especially were very educated people, and yet human reason was not able to bring them to Christ. Now, human reason can bring us a long way. It can bring us, I put on the outline there, that the human reason can bring us to, oh, I left off the outline. Oh, no, it's right there. Find. The first one is to find revelation, right? We use our human reason. We use the reason that God has given us to find where God has revealed himself. That's why we believe that God has revealed himself in the Bible and not in the Quran or in whatever other holy book may be out there, or whatever other cultic guru might speak in the name of God. Our human reason enables us to find where God has revealed himself. Our human reason helps us 
to understand the revelation that God has given us. We can read the Bible. We understand it. We systematize it. That's theology, right? You can see that the arrows go down from God to special revelation to the Bible to theology. Theology is the human action whereby we take what God has given us in his word and we understand it and we apply it to our life. All this we use our human reason to do. We use human reason to defend the scripture against attacks, against those who would deny its power or deny its truth. But then I left you a blank there at the end, but never to replace. And that's the key word there that I'd have you write in if you're taking notes this morning, but never to replace scripture. I think that helps us to understand, my friends, how reason is such a wonderful gift that God has given us. And that, yes, we can look out at the creation that God has given us, and we can reason from God's creation to God as a creator. But our human reason can never replace the written word that God has given us. And apart from this written word, my friends, we stumble in the dark. I'll never forget when I was at Grand Rapids Community College. I took a philosophy course there. And in my philosophy book, there was a, a saying that, that I thought was so interesting. And it said that a philosopher is a blind man in a dark room searching for a black cat that isn't there. A blind man in a dark room searching for a black cat that isn't there. And my friends, I chuckled too when I read that first. But what a picture that is of, of any human person, the wisest of human persons. But with just his human reason, and apart from the light of God's word, he fumbles and searches around in vain. Now, how do we know this? Because, my, my friends, we can see it. We can read the history books, right? We can read about these astonishingly intelligent people, Plato and Aristotle, uh, you know, and, and, and the men who, who, who followed them were men of astonishing gifts. And the, 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 the knowledge that they gained about this natural world is incredible. It's mind-boggling, the, the progress they made in human knowledge. And yet, when you look at their religion, you just shake your head because it's so foolish. And so this, is, this, this gives us a good understanding, first of all, to be thankful for our reason, to be thankful for God's general revelation, and yet to understand, my friends, that apart from the written word of God, we walk in the dark. And so I, I really would, would have you remember that, that expression, that we use our reason, we use our minds to find God's word, to understand God's word, to defend God's word, but never to replace God's word. Otherwise, otherwise, we're like those people in John 1. You know that, that, that thing I just gave you about the dark room and the black cat and stuff? That that's just comes really, my friends, from John. Right where he says, uh, uh, this, uh, there was the true light. Right? Of course, speaking about the Logos, speaking about Jesus Christ. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. In other words, it enlightens every man in the sense that it gives us reason, the ability to think. And yet we read just previously that the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. 
So when we reject God's written revelation, we place ourselves in the darkness. And my friends, I I would have you understand carefully also that chart that I gave you on the right side there, that from God comes revelation, but we've always in the Reformed churches divide, actually not even in the Reformed churches, in pretty much every evangelical church, we divide that into God's general revelation and his special revelation, the one being unwritten and the other written. And from the unwritten, we get natural theology, right? It's the theology that we just use natural means, our own minds to find. And natural theology is still a wonderful gift that God gives us. Again, the text says that God did not leave himself without witness. And even with natural theology, we can discover that there is a God, right? We can discover that there is a God, that we are accountable to him, but it does not lead us to the feet of Jesus. It does not lead us to Christ. Now, my friends, one of the very useful disciplines that Christians can do. So again, Christians are on the right side of that chart, right? We've immersed ourselves, hopefully, in special revelation. But it's a a useful exercise to look at the other side of that column and to think, as Paul did in Lystra, of how can I present the gospel in a way that makes use of these methods, right? That focuses or that bases itself more on general revelation so that I can more effectively meet these people and help these people to understand the gospel. That is a a, a discipline that many Christian theologians have, have worked at. And of course, in a sense, we kind of cheat, right? Because we have, we have God's written revelation already, right? We have, you might say, the answers given us, right? We can just read them. But then we go to the other side of the column, the left-hand side of the column, and we think, now how can I arrive at those same answers? But apart from a belief in the scripture. And by doing that, we can be more effective evangelists more effectively carry out the mission that God has given us. Certainly Paul was able to do that. My friends, my third point of application then is this entry point. And much of this I've already said. I've, I've given this the Acts 13 method, or you could also write in there the, the Antioch method, right? And that's a method that starts with, this is what God has done in your life. Perhaps you're speaking to somebody who's walked away from God. You're speaking to somebody who already believes in the scripture, already knows the scripture. And you can use this now as an entry point. You can use this as a conversation starter to speak to this person and to say, think of what God has done in your life. I remember this happened to me one time. I was pumping gas and I saw this friend pull in who I knew was, uh, uh, who I knew had been in a terrible car accident and his life had been spared. And uh, usually I'm not this confrontational, but I just stepped up to the man and said, hi. We talked a little bit, and I said, brother, I said, look what God's done for you. What have you done for him? And I think that can be an effective thing, my friends, when we are speaking to people in Acts 13, right? People who know the Lord, who've read the scripture, who know Moses and the prophets. That can be an entry point for us. But we also have available to us the Acts 14 method, or shall I call it the Lystra method, for people who know nothing of scripture. Now, again, we can still have this entry point. We can still speak to them in a cosmological way, right? We can speak to them about the world. We can speak to them about their experience in the world. And you can use that as a, as a way to open that conversation. Where do you suppose this world came from? Do you think that this world is eternal? 
Or do you suppose that this world had a beginning? Well, if this world had a beginning, how do you suppose it got started? Again, these are questions now, right, that any living person in this world must confront. Because we all live in this world. You might know nothing of the scripture, but you certainly live in this world. And you certainly have these questions, right? The standard questions of where have we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? A conversation starter. Maybe a little way to begin to to speak to someone and to open their minds to the gospel. And let us remember, my friends, that we're always aiming to bring people to the feet of Jesus. No matter which of these methods we use, turn from these idols to the living God, says Paul. And that's also what we do. Turn from these idols that we see all around us in our day and turn to the living God. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and find your life in him. Well, my friends, may this message help us then to be better evangelists for God, better workers in his kingdom, and to carry on the mandate that he's given us to perform, uh, to be as wise as serpents. Remember when Jesus said that, to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we draw near to you. Lord, we earnestly desire to be faithful ministers of the new covenant, faithful apologists for the truth of your word. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us then to do so in this world. And whatever person we meet, wherever that person may be, Lord, help us to contextualize that message so that we can speak to them in an effective way, in a way that is compelling for them. Lord, we know that even our best message, even our best evangelistic approach uh, is empty unless your spirit accompanies it. And so we pray, O God, that as we go forth in this world and as we speak to neighbors and to colleagues, to fellow students at the university or at our school, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would go with the word, that word and spirit would go forth with power to convert the hearts of sinners. Lord, we know that uh, this too is a great encouragement to us because your spirit can, can work even when our approach is faulty, even when we, when we don't know all the right words, when we don't have the best arguments, even when we fail, that still, O oh God, your spirit can call effectually with us or without us. Lord, I pray that you would raise up many uh, gospel ministers in this place who can labor in whatever calling they labor, but who can labor for you in that calling and that your kingdom would grow and expand until the day comes, Lord, when you will stand on the circle of this earth and when you will call your people home. Lord, hear our prayer then. Remember us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now in the blue hymnal to number 177. 177. And let's sing together, The man who once has found abode within the secret place of God shall with Almighty God abide and in his shadow safely hide. We'll sing the six verses of number 177 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.